Today, brothers and sisters, we are continuing our sermon series exploring the post-exilic section of the Bible. In this section of the Bible, known as the post-exilic uh, uh, area of the Bible, this area has six books to it. The Bible, of course, has 66 different books. There are various uh, areas or, or eras, if you will, and genres as well. And so it's important to understand how it all fits together. And so for, for purposes of teaching this and equipping you to understand this section of Scripture known as the post-exile, we are studying these texts together as a whole. Again, there are six to this section of the Bible. Three of the six are known as historical, they're a part of historical genre. They're historical narratives. And they are Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The other three in this section of six in the post-exile are prophetic books. So you have three narratives, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, and then three prophetic books, and they are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. We are studying these three as a unit. We're, we're looking at them in the ways in which they overlap. And so we began in Ezra. We got up to the fifth chapter of Ezra, that first historical narrative. And he mentions the two prophets, Haggai and Nehemiah, or Haggai and uh, Zechariah, excuse me. And we got into Haggai, we covered all of Haggai, and then we get, got into Zechariah, and that's where we left off. As we are studying these six books together, there is a theme that surfaces in them as they're overlapping, intertwining, and we're picking them apart and looking at them. This theme surfaces, and the theme is all about the faithfulness of God. That is why I've entitled the sermon series, Faithful to Fulfill. And if I could get some help in the sound booth, I'm having troubles with the slide changing. Faithful to fulfill a study of God as revealed in the post-exilic scripture. Okay, so we've worked through Ezra. Okay, so we've worked through Haggai. Okay, so we've gotten into Zechariah. We are in the book of Zechariah. We have found our way up to the sixth chapter. So if you would please open your Bibles and find your way to Zechariah chapter 6. The title of my message this morning is Eke Homo, which is a popular Latin translation of a line that was dropped by the historic Pontius Pilate in an incredible historic moment when our Lord Jesus the Christ was on trial and his life was on the line and the crowds were, 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 were there and they, they wanted him dead and they were calling for his death. And so in comes the governor Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate is just kind of going along with the crowds. Very similar to the way that politicians operate today. They just go along with the crowds. And in this case, the crowds want blood. They want the blood of Jesus, the historical man of Nazareth. And so, so, so Pilate sort of caves in to their, their bloodthirst. And he has uh, Jesus scourged, and, and, and sadistic soldiers twist thorns into a crown, and they they, they press it and gouge it into the, the head of Jesus, and they beat Jesus, and they mock Jesus, and all of that should have been enough. You know, here's the blood that you want. Here you go, public display. He's been beaten. He's been humiliated. He's been mocked. He's been beaten to a pulp. But that didn't satisfy the crowds. Pilate, Pilate says to the crowds, look, I, I think he's innocent. I've given you what you want. We've, you know, he's been publicly beaten. You know, what else do you want? And they, 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 they shout, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate gives up trying to satisfy them, and he says, Eduha anthropos, behold the man. In Latin, eke homo, behold the man. And the crowd shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we read in the historical account of John's Gospel 19, verse 6, Take him yourselves and crucify him, Pilate says, for I find no guilt in him. Now, while Pilate finds no guilt in him, he also has no idea who stands before him. The man, the anthropos, the, the homo. He, he, he is no mere homo, no mere anthropos, no mere man. The one who stands before him, behold the man, eke homo. The one who stands before him is, is also eke theos. He is God. He is God the Son in the flesh. Now, neither he, Pilate, nor the crowds knew it. In our passage today, we are going to see in the prophet Zechariah another man, Eke Homo. We will behold a man, and this is a very powerful vision. The vision comes on the heels of a, of a series of visions, and I will submit to you that the man that we see in Zechariah is the man who we see who stood before Pilate. This is the same man. This is the son of man who has come into human history. 
So with that said, the vision that we're going to be studying this morning at the end of chapter 6, uh, we, 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 we must understand the context and things that are going on around it. So you'll see on your outline the first point that I have for you is the opening context. Zechariah is a prophet of the post-exile. It is a part of this section of the scriptures that I've been talking to you about in terms of this section, these six books that deal with the post-exile. The exile is over, hence post. Now that is good news, because the exile was a horrible era in Israel's history. Their land was taken, they lost everything, they lost their homes, many of them lost their lives. Further, they all lost their temple. The sacred structure that housed the Creator God in the earth was toppled. Zechariah opens his book and he wastes no time in calling the people of God to the Word of God. He reminds them of the covenant that God has with Abraham. Look at, look at, look at chapter 1, verse 2. Zechariah wastes no time. He says, God is angry with his people. You're in covenant with God. What are, what, what are you guys doing? He's rescued you from the exile. He's brought you to the land of promise. And what are you guys doing? The prophet Zechariah goes on to explain how, 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 how God's gaze was upon their ancestors' sin, that they were acting like their ancestors who, who got them there in the first place, in the place of exile. You see, the temple wasn't toppled because God was weak. Oh no, God is omnipotent. He, he holds all power. God allowed for the temple to be toppled. He allowed for the land to be desecrated as a part of disciplining his people and holding them in fidelity to the covenant that he gave to them through the prophet Moses that hinges with the covenant that was given to Abram. God gave a covenant to Abram that he would take Abram, that he would give him a progeny, that he would make that progeny into a people, and he would take that people to a place, the land of promise, and through that place and that people, he would bring prosperity to the nations. Not just a socio-economic or cultural or, or international, but a spiritual one. He would bless the earth, which is important because the earth is fallen. The story of Abram, it, it, it comes on the heels of the story of Adam. Uh, humanity has fallen. Humanity's made a mess of creation. Creation that was given to humanity, that had perfect harmony and perfect love and perfect shalom, that is peace. Humans rebelled against God and, and disharmony comes and dysfunction comes and death itself comes and decay, not just to human bodies, but, but, but to the creation itself. So the promise that was given to Abram to, to give him a progeny and a place and bring this prosperity is all about reversing the curse. The, the great prophet uh, Moses comes to them as they come to the land of, uh, uh, that was promised to them, and, and Moses uh, gives them Torah. He gives them mitzvahot. He gives them commandments from God that are these covenantal stipulations for them in the land. If you obey God, blessing comes. If you go against God, cursing comes. It's just like what happened with Adam. Obey and flourish in the garden, rebel and so in be cast out. And so Israel kind of recapitulates the story of Adam. They, they desire the forbidden fruit. They're cast out of the land. Now God graciously brings them back into the land, and they're behaving the way their forefathers did. And so the prophet Haggai comes and calls them out. You, you guys aren't building the temple. You're not, restore, you're not on mission. Haggai calls them out specifically for spending time down at Home Depot and Ikea, buying stuff and hooking their houses up instead of hooking up the house of the Lord. And so, so Haggai... Bless him, he preaches his little heart out and no one listens. And then God sends Zechariah who comes and, and he's preaching his heart out as, as we see. And, and the book wastes no time. You see, from the get, you know, he just jumps right in. Let me start my sermon with God's mad at you. Uh, God's, got, God's, God's calling you guys to action. And so he, he drops the weight of that on them so as to call them to repentance, so as to, to, to prepare them, to prepare them for, for the hour that is before them. The people were saved from exile. The people were given a gift. The people were called to mission. The people, the people were told, do this, and they were not listening. Now, we cannot stand above the text and look at our uh, ancient brothers and sisters in the faith and say, whoa, I can't believe they were doing that. Because we, too, have been given a commission that we often ignore. The risen Lord has told us to go and to share the good news, to go and to make disciples, to go and lead the lost to him. And, 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 and how often, right, we don't do that. A, a day could pass, a week could pass, a, a, a month could pass, a year could pass without you actively engaging in obedience to the commission that has been given to you to use your life to be his mouthpiece and his witness. That, that's our mission. 
That's our prophetic word. Jesus is our Moses, and he has given us this mandate. And so, so Moses gave the people a mandate, temple, worship. Israel was to be, a, 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 as a nation, a priesthood to the whole world. That was, that was how they would bring that mediation, that, that blessing, because priests mediate. Priests stand in a, in a position of mediation. A, a mediator is one who stands between a party that is at odds with another party. I'll sit with you. Let's try to work this out. A, a priesthood comes and cries out to fallen creation. The creator has come. He is offering his grace to you. He is offering his pardon. And so Israel was to mediate that. The people were to be a priesthood. And the temple is all teaching the creation about that. In the temple, there's sacrifice. There's innocent things of the earth that die, animals and plants and whatnot. And it, it's, it's teaching us about what sin does and how it brings death and how innocence is lost and how, how you need mediation. And it's all ultimately pointing to something beyond that temple, beyond that place. It's pointing to the one we stand, hindsight's twenty twenty. thankfully, praise be to God, I'm thankful to live in the age in which I do, where I can read these prophecies and see these symbols and know that our Lord and Savior has fulfilled them. So Zechariah comes and he's calling them to that place to build those symbols, the temples, and, and to walk in obedience. All things that are picturing on this side of the cross what was to come. So the beginning of the book, he jumps in, he, six verses, it's really hard, he just lays it down. And then from chapter 1, verse 7, all the way through chapter 6, verse 8, we have a series of these eight-night visions. Uh, we, we, we took these in two chunks. I shared with you guys that I was tempted to try and do it all in one, and doing it uh, just four and four was, uh, you know, there was a lot going on. And as we jump back into the text, and in case you've missed anything, and also if you didn't, you just have to have these visions fresh in mind as we're jumping back into the text. So by way of opening context here, let's revisit these. So the, the visions... Right, the man in the myrtle trees, the, the four horns, the four craftsmen, the surveyor, the measuring line, Joshua the high priest, the golden lampstand in chapter 4, the vision of the flying open scroll in chapter 5, the woman in the basket being carried away in chapter 5, the four chariots, four spirits of the earth in chapter 6. All, all of these are, are just incredible to read, and thankfully they have angelic interpretation woven into them so that as we are reading them, we can understand them. The reader is not left in the dark concerning the meaning of these visions. As, as we, we studied, we saw the meaning, and, and the meaning in it is, is filled with hope, hope for the future for the people as they're in this hard mission field. The, 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 the visions are filled with hope for the future. The visions are also filled with exhortations for the present. In the present, they were being reminded that the exile and the post-exile was all God's plan. The political powers, the turmoil, the chaos, it was all a part of God's providential plan. Indeed, that's an important reminder for us as we've been setting these visions and we live in our own uh, hour of political uh, chaos and turmoil. Uh, we, we see in Haiti missionaries being kidnapped. We see at home our government doing all kinds of goofy stuff. And we need to be reminded when we gather on Lord's Day that God is on his throne and he's not caught off guard by anything that happened this week or that will happen next week. We finished studying these visions, and we were just continually reminded of these. And last week I shared with you how these, how these visions are really cool because when you break them down and you look at them from a bird's, bird's eye view, they actually mirror one another. Vision 1 and Vision 8, the first and the last, mirror one another. Vision 2 and Vision 7 provide a mirror. Vision 3 and Vision 6 provide a mirror. And Vision 4 and Vision 5 mirror one another. This symmetrical design in these visions it's used as a literary device for the readers to really drive home. Look, these, these visions shouldn't be treated independently, which is why I was tempted to try and do it all in one. Uh, you know, God forbid you do a sermon on each one. You need to see how they're fitting uh, together. Well, not God forbid, it's God's word. But I, I wanted you to see the, the thing as a whole. And this graphic before you kind of gives you a piece of that. Look at the first and last visions. We have the four horsemen who are like a police patrol in the earth, and they give report of a kind of Pax Romana during the Persian reign. Things were momentarily calm. The Syria and Babylon that brought about the exile of the people of Israel, now, now the Persian Empire is, is there, and uh, they report back, the four horsemen report back that things are calm. Which raises for the reader a question of the promised Messiah who was supposed to uh, uh, usher in an era of calm, an era of shalom and peace. God speaks through the vision and he reminds the reader, hey, 
There's peace, but there's not a Messiah. Hey, the Messiah is going to come. When, Lord? I'm not telling you that part. I'm just going to tell you he's coming. Okay, thanks. And then you get more visions. The second vision and the seventh vision, they mirror one another with the messianic question of when is he coming and, and filling you with hope. Oh, he's going to come. To be sure, he's going to come. There's reflections in vision 2 and 7 of God's salvation of his people from foreign powers and from uh, internal powers, personal sin. The second vision describes the four horns that symbolize the enemies of Israel who were struck down by a crew of four craftsmen, which is an image of Persia who defeated Israel's enemies, and an image for a future deliverance for the people from her enemies and also from her sin. In the seventh vision, there's an idol that looks like a woman inside of a wicker basket that's carried away by these dark, dirty, winged creatures far away into the land of Shinar, the land of sin, the land of Babylon. It's an imagery of idolatry, a symbol for sin, of God removing that from within his people. The vision shows us God using Babylon and borders and exiles and everything for his plan. The visions remind us that the political, social, relational, communal turmoil that they were experiencing wasn't the result of militaries and politics, society, relationships, or community. No, deep down the problem was spiritual. The prophets are calling them to, to see the spiritual dimensions of this, to see that the source of their problem in their day was, 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 was a matter of sin. Stop looking at the symptoms. Look at the source. The source is sin. The source is the serpent. Hear him hissing through it all. See the source, not the mere symptom, and enter into the struggle. It's a spiritual battle. We read in the book of Ephesians, Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up, take up the full armor of God, and you will be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Again, a, an important reminder for us as we're studying this text of the mindset that we ought to have in our day. As we look at the world, as we see chaos, as we see war, as we see unrest in our own land, as we see divides and polarities and powers, and, and you look at it all and you go, look, look, what we're seeing on the news isn't just politicians and powers acting goofy. The devil is in the details. And we have been called and saved to be the mouthpiece of the Lord in this age, to proclaim the one who has come to set the captives free, and to call the lost, and to call out the shenanigans, and to call out the source of it all, that is sin, repent, come, be saved, be set free. The visions are reminding the people of Israel of that very thing. The mirroring of it is reminding them, hey, look, what, what, what the, you, they were seeing in their CNN and Fox and, and whatnot, what they were seeing, look, look, you need to be reminded what's going on. This is a spiritual battle. Visions 3 and 6 mirror one another as they're about the restoration of the new Jerusalem, the new city. In vision 3, an angel is measuring out Jerusalem as it grows in grace and God's presence manifests blessings on her borders. In vision 6, there is a, a scroll that is open and, it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it's flying. I likened it to Aladdin's you know, magic carpet. It's flying and it's open. And on the scroll is, is Torah, mitzvah, commandments of God, proclaiming the blight of the people. Here's commandments that indict you. Here's the commandments that indict you because you're compromised. You have broken God's law. You need grace. Visions 4 and 5 mirror one another as they build upon the imagery of the restoration of the new Jerusalem, now envisioning Israel's leaders restored and reinstated, namely the priest and the prince, or the king. The priest is pictured in dirty clothes. Satan is attacking him. And then the heavens respond with a great rebuke. And the fallen angel, the serpent, is, is cast off and, and, and the priest stands in his robes dirty and God, by his grace, cleanses him. That scroll that flew over the land condemning you, behold, God is a gracious God and he cleanses his people as seen in the, in the priest who represents the people before God. In the fifth vision, we see the golden lampstand, the two olive trees picturing the coming messianic king, priest, and king. In, 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 in the eight visions, they, they all close with Zechariah saying that what was seen is going to be fulfilled. Again, the sermon series, Faithful to Fulfill. It's going to be fulfilled. However, the prophet says, it will only be fulfilled if the current generation was faithful to Torah and faithful to temple. 
mind you, the temple was still unfinished. And, 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 and they were being called to, to repent, to turn, to stop using their money for themselves, to stop serving themselves, to, to, to stop doing what they wanted to do, to, to, to stop seeking comfort, to stop taking the easy road, and instead come back, sacrifice, build, give it all, serve with everything, your full heart. Zechariah is clear that this is not going to happen unless you obey. Zechariah is equally clear that it is not going to happen by your mere obedience and white knuckling. For as Zechariah 4, 6 says, this is the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. They will do this by God's power. Spoiler alert, the people do not rely on God's power, the spirit. They continue in carnality, chasing comfort and collapsing into compromise. So the visions aren't realized in their day, at least not in their fullness. And so in that regard, as we're studying this, it's kind of sad because you see, you see what was lost. You see what they missed out on. And so too, we ought to think of, of, you know, in our own lives, the things we miss out on because we're not giving everything to the Lord. Of the people who, who he places in our path to share his good news with. And for whatever reason... We're not bold or we're too busy or whatever it might be. We're, 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 we live in the fear of man and not the fear of God. We miss out on experiencing the joy of leading those to Christ. Now, all of this is important context for us as we pick up where we left off last week. Today's pericope or unit of thought that I'll be teaching from, is it serves as like a bonus vision. So you have to have all of these eight visions in mind because this, uh, this bonus vision actually contains a lot of the themes that are inside of these eight visions. The parallel suggests that the pericope before us is actually uh, uh, it's sort of uh, commenting on or concluding these visions. And so you want to have them all in mind. In particular, we'll see that the high priest in chapter 3 reappears in chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. The messianic figure called the branch in chapter 3, verse 8, look at 3, 8, see the branch? That branch is going to resurface in chapter 6, verse 12. Further, the images of the priest and the prince or the king, uh, those are going to come again. And so the stage of these eight visions prepares us for the text this morning, which is why I labor up front to give you the context. The question before the people is simple. Will you sacrifice? Will you build? Or will you cruise on easy street? Let's see who has skin in the game. The call of repentance has come. He or she who has eyes to see, he or she who has ears to hear, will hear the cry of the prophet and come in repentance and faith and enter into service. Now in chapter 6, there is a call to those who again have eyes to see and ears to hear. Come and sacrifice. Give. Chapter 6, verse 9. The word of the Lord came to me. The word of the Lord came to me. That's the prophetic key turn to let you know. This isn't me talking. This is an oracle. It comes from God. Let's see who has skin in the game. The word of the Lord came to me. Verse 10. Take an offering. Who has skin in the game? Let's see who's going to give. This leads us to the next point. We move from opening context to offering collected. The word that is used here. Take an offering. The word for offering here is used in other places inside of the Bible uh, for specifically a free will offering. This is not a tithe. This is not a part of kind of the mandatory obligations of the Torah for the people in terms of their corporate giving. In worship, this is a free will offering. It is above and beyond. Draw your eyes uh, uh, at, at this quote from Exodus 25, verse 2 that I put in front of you. Tell the sons of Israel to raise a contribution for me. For every man whose heart moves, you shall raise my contribution. You see, the giving was to come from the heart, the moving of the heart. Indeed, that's what worship is. Worship is a, a moving from the heart. As a church, we want our people to want to be here. We, we want you to want to be here. As parents, I want my children to want to be here. And if they don't want to, it's too bad you're coming anyway because you <laughs> live under my house. But I don't, I don't want that, obviously, you know, for the adults in, in the church. I don't want you to be manipulated to come or guilt-tripped to come. We want you to want to be here. When it's time to sing, we, we want you to want to sing. We want it to come deep within the heart. We want you to just belt it out. When it comes time to study, we want you to want it. We want you to open the Word and be excited for the Word. 
When it comes time to serve and we say, hey, we need helpers in Awana or helpers in the kitchen or helpers with this or that or people to stack chairs after the service. We want it to come from the heart. Oh, I want to do that. I get to do that. I get to be a part of that. Yes, call for them to give, but it needs to come from the heart. Zechariah chapter 6, let's read it again. The word of the Lord came to me saying, take an offering from the exiles, from Heldai, Tobiah, Jedediah, and you will go the same day and you will enter the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah, where they have arrived from Babylon. The people are invited to give. Specific persons are mentioned among the worshipers who are bringing these offerings from their hearts. We read about, uh, about Heldai, Tobiah, and Jedediah. These men are among the post-exile returnees from Babylonia. We will see in a moment that they bring gold and silver. This shows that the post-exiles had done okay in Babylon. This helps us also understand why, as we saw in Ezra, as we saw in Haggai, why many of them didn't come. When the, when the prophets called and said, God has set you free, look at what God has done providentially through the politics and the powers of the Persians to deliver you from the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and now is your time to come, many of them were like, eh, I don't want to do that. Most of them stayed. Most of them stayed in the place of comfort. Here we see that those coming out of Babylon, they have money. They're doing well. Why would I go there where it's hard? I don't, I don't want to do that. This helps us to understand the predicament. It, it, it gives us comfort as well as we serve in California today. California is a really hard place. It's a really hard mission field. And it's not getting any easier with the radical politicians and powers that we have who are literally pushing themselves on God's people. Dare I say, even jabbing us, right? It's expensive, it's tiring, it's hard, but God is worthy. And further, church, God is in control. Our labor is not in vain. Our service is not in vain. Zechariah's people needed to hear this as well. Here's some visions Zechariah offers, well, God offers, and the angels explain. God is on the throne. God is in control. And now with these visions, you call the people to come, and you call the people to, to, to give. And you have people who are coming back, and they have resources, and they're giving. It's worth noting that God's people, as we see in the Septuagint, the LXX, understood that the names of uh, Tobiah, Jedediah, and Heldai were actually kind of descriptions of God being in control. Here's what I mean. You know, if you've studied the Bible much, that names are quite significant. Names bring meaning with them. Tobiah means the Lord is good. Jedediah means the Lord knows. Heldai, it's a bit of a tricky one etymologically, but it means something like an earthling or from the earth. That is to say, the Lord is good to those he knows, his people in the earth. All of these names, Heldai, Tobiah, Jedediah, they all have Yah in them, which is an abbreviation for Yahweh, the divine name of the God of Israel, the God of creation, the true and living God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit, the one true and living God who alone is worthy of such offering. He is worthy of any and every gift that we bring and infinitely more. Our, our gifts that we bring, our feeble songs that we sing, the checks that we write, the money that we wire, all of it, he deserves infinitely more. Now, seeing these three men from a foreign land bringing gifts to the Lord, uh, it definitely reminds me of some other men from a foreign land bringing gifts. When we think about the birth of our Lord Jesus and those foreign men, the Magi or Magi, who came and they brought gifts to the Christ child. They brought gifts to the literal temple of God, the divine Son in the flesh. And these men here, they bring literal gifts to the literal temple, the physical temple that would be in the land of Jerusalem that would, that would picture and look forward to the Christ child who had come. Now, as we study the text, we'll see these, uh, these overtones, these images of the Christ child in them. We will see the Eke Homo who stood before Pilate in this text as well. We see the importance of Zechariah's word and the people responding, and we see the people coming, and now there's some and they're giving. That was an encouraging moment as Tobiah, Jedediah, and Heldai came, and they're bringing these gifts. You'd say, okay, this is really happening. God's bringing people out of Babylon, and he's bringing them here, and, and, and they're giving. This is going to be hard. It's going to require sacrifice, but God's bringing people who are going to come. Building requires giving. Building requires giving. And the gifts that they were bringing would go directly to that building. The metals that they were bringing would be used for melting them down and making necessary things for the temple, 
necessary things that would be vital for the worship of the people in that place, for the priests and the kings specifically. So we've looked at the opening context, the offering that's collected, third point on your outline. Now we look at the ornate crown. Draw your eyes at verse 11 in the text. Zechariah says, Take silver, take the gold, make an ornate crown, set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, along with the money the people managed to earn in Babylon, we also know from the historical record and the scripture that the Persians also gave back uh, from the bounty and the booty. In Ezra chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, the stuff that was taken, the plunder, a lot of that stuff was given back. And, and, and God supernaturally was, was working through this. We see that happen in, in history where, where, where people and powers come in and take stuff and, 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 and then a generation later you go, oh, that was kind of shady and they give stuff back or whatever. We're seeing that with Bruce's Beach in, in Manhattan most recently where you look back and go, oh, that was kind of shady. Hey, maybe we should do something about this. So the Persians also gave them like, oh, yeah, we kind of took all your stuff here. Here's some goblets and stuff we jagged. And they're bringing stuff back. So they did well in Babylon, but they also are bringing stuff back as God was working through the Persian Empire and in his common grace, softening their hearts for the people of Israel. Gold is a precious metal. It's, it's, it's expensive. It is a fitting gift for the king of creation, for his temple. Uh, as well, gold, uh, not only a, a fitting uh, a, a gift, it's also a fitting picture, because gold pictures heaven. We think of the streets of gold that we read about inside of Scripture. Streets of gold, that means there's no shortage of it in the heavens. While we have little of it in the earth and the heavens, it's, it, it, there's, it, there's ample supply. So when you go to the temple and you see the gold and you see the priests, and you're, you're drawn to see the heavens, which is fitting, because the temple is supposed to be a porthole of the heavens into the earth. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 9, we see the gold being used to make an ornate crown. In the Hebrew, it's actually plural, atarot, uh, uh, meaning a, a, a double crown. We see, we see here in the text before us this ornate crown uh, again in the sixth chapter of Zechariah. This, this is a, a double crown. It has silver and gold. We, we, we know in terms of metals that you can't melt those together. They don't fit together. And so it's very likely that they would have been like two rings on top of each other, gold, silver, or perhaps woven together the gold and the silver. Now keep in mind that the crown is a symbol. The crown is pointing to something. In Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, we are reminded, if you didn't underline it before, underline it now, uh, Zechariah 3, 8, we're reminded that all of this was a symbol, Zechariah says. The, the people and the stuff and the temple, it's all a symbol. It's all pointing to something. That crown is pointing to something beyond them. They are making something that is pointing to something beyond. Now, here's a helpful diagram that I, I slapped together yesterday that hopefully will help us all make some sense as we understand biblical prophecy. You have a guy here on the end which would symbolize a Hebrew prophet. And you have from his vantage point what he's seeing. Imagine it as mountains through a valley. Now, if you look, you know, from this angle, from the angle that he would be seeing on the mountaintops, he's just, he's just seeing the mountaintops, but he's not seeing the valleys in between. He's, he's not seeing all that's going on. And we see this inside of the Hebrew prophets. So uh, uh, we, we know from progressive revelation of God's word in Scripture that the Messiah was to have two comings. He was to come and to suffer, and then he will return and rule and reign. And so you see inside of Hebrew prophecy, the one who comes and suffers and the one who comes and rules and reigns, right? Well, is that, is that the same one? Yeah, it's the same one. Well, then how does he suffer, and how does he reign, and how does that work? And so in the Hebrew prophets, you have that all mingled together. It's as though they're just seeing the mountaintops. You have the, the history of Israel and the prophets of Israel looking, and they, they, they see the one who is born. So you have prophecies of his birth, and they see uh, prophecies about the coming of the Spirit, and they see prophecies about the time of Jacob's trouble, the day of the Lord, the tribulation. And they have prophecies about a Messiah being on a throne, and prophecies about a new heavens and new earth. And how does that fit together? We see in the progressive revelation of God's Word that the people of Israel reject their Messiah, and that God raises up a remnant Israel and his, and his Jewish disciples, who then go out and they bring the good news to the world. And we enter into this age of the church in which we find ourselves. And we see inside of prophecy that again he will restore his people Israel. And the Messiah will come and he will be on his throne. 
The Messiah will, will rapture his church out of this. For the time of Jacob's trouble is about the restoration of his people Israel. And he will come with his church. He will secure a, 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 from among the 12 tribes of Israel, we read in the book of Revelation, 144,000. And he will bring them to the land of promise with his church. And he will say, inherit the kingdom. And we read in, 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 in prophecy, in the Hebrew prophets of this millennial era where, where the king is on his throne and everything is, is in righteousness and peace and we see it climaxing with the ultimate eradication of evil and the new heavens and the new earth. From the vantage point of Zechariah, though, he's seeing the mountaintops. And so he's going to offer some things, as we've already seen and we're going to see vividly this morning, he, he's going to speak of Messiah in these mountaintops. And so this gives you a bit of a vantage point as we're keeping it in the context of a wider story that's being told throughout the, the Bible. But in, in terms of Zechariah's context, he's in post-exile and he's looking at mountaintops. Let's go back to Zechariah, chapter 6, verse 12. Okay, so the, you got the crown, you got the ornate crown, verse 11, verse 12. Then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold a man. Now, let's just hang on right there. Behold a man. Hene ish. In the Hebrew it says. Hene ish. Behold man. Hene behold ish man. Our English translation supplies the A there. Other English translations like the ESV, KJV, NKJV, NAT. I could go on. Use the definite article, the. Behold the man. I would actually prefer inserting the definite article, the instead of A, because we will see as we study in the, in the wider context that this is the man. This isn't any old man. This is, this is the man. Who's the man? This man's the man. Eke homo. This is the very man that, that Pilate beheld and proclaimed this very phrase over. Behold man. Behold the man. Then say to him, verse 12, thus says the word of the Lord, behold the man whose name is Branch. For he will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Zechariah speaks of the Messiah, the one who will build the temple of the Lord. In the, in the Targum Yonasah, the Targum of jo Jonathan, an ancient, an ancient Jewish text that is interpreting these texts before the time of Christ, it inserts here in this section, and I quote, Behold the man, Messiah is his name. He will be revealed, and he will become great, and he will build the temple of God. Now, I show you this for purposes of history. In Jewish tradition, the Targum of Jonathan is so named because it is associated with a pupil of Hillel, the elder, Jonathan ben Uziel, who is said to have received the Targum directly, and I quote, from the mouth of the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So the ancient Jews believed that this, this interpretation of that text is what it means. The ancients understood what we're reading here in Zechariah was talking about the Messiah. Behold the man is tied to the prophetic hopes of the Messiah. So then just think of the irony, or rather the providence, when Pilate said, Eke homo. Like he's, he's a pagan, and he manages unknowingly to actually quote the text, like word for word, that was pointing to him. Here's the classic 1871 uh, European painting by Antonio Cicere depicting Pilate presenting Jesus to the people, Eke Homo. The providential irony, when you think about Pilate, who's quoting Zechariah, the high priest Caiaphas is standing there as, as Pilate is doing this. The high priest Caiaphas, he knows the scripture. Meanwhile, the pagan governor knows nothing, and he manages to utter the words of scripture, which should have jarred Caiaphas's memory. But no. No. They chant, crucify him. Crucify him. They missed the long-awaited, highly anticipated Messiah. Why? Because they missed the valley of the prophecy that I was showing you. They're saying, he's not the Messiah. Look at him. We just beat him up. You can't beat up a Messiah. A Messiah is supposed to bring in the day of the Lord. He's going to bring in the time of Jacob's trouble. He's going to Purge the earth of evil. He's going to sit on his throne. This guy ain't that guy. Look at him. We, have him. we have him roped up. That's not the Messiah that we read inside of our prophecy. Oh, oh, you have such a narrow understanding of your prophetic text. And so even today in Jewish theology, we, we, we see misunderstandings with regard to this. The term Mashiach or Messiah is used in, in Jewish theology, specifically in eschatology, their understanding of end times, to refer to a, an anointed king Messiah. In Hebrew, it's, uh, it, it, Mashiach is 
Messiah, Melech, is king. They speak of a Melech Mashiach who will establish his people in the promised land, just like was promised to Abram. He'll usher in an era of peace, just like what was promised to, era, uh, to, to Abram. And he will build the temple. He will build the temple as, as Moses, the great revelator, gave to the people. Now, in fact, in Jewish tradition and end times, they, they believe today, many of them, in two redeemers. They believe in one, the Mashiach, and, 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 and they believe in another, the, the Melech. They speak of the Mashiach ben David, and, and the other is known as the Mashiach ben Yosef. These two figures in their tradition uh, accomplish both. Of course, in the ancient Jewish understanding of this, and in Jesus' teaching of this, and the Jewish disciples' teachings of this, and later Christian literature, it locks it together and shows you the mountaintops and the valleys, so you see how it all fits together. Behold the man. It's one man who will be the priest who will suffer and the king who will conquer. Which leads me to the next point on the outline. We move from offering collected ornate crown to offices combined. We're going to see that these images combine in the one. Remember, Zechariah sees a symbol. It is pointing to something beyond. Behold a man whose name is Branch. The individual is a symbol. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 and through 9, there's a king who is installed in the second person. This, though, is in the third person. Joshua, the high priest, is a symbol of something else. He's an actor on stage. He's playing a character. He's picturing someone else. Who is he picturing? The one who is known as the branch. The Hebrew term translated branch can also mean shoot. In prophecy, the Messiah was the shoot from the royal line of David. David. Look at the prophecies of Jeremiah. Here we have Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Jeremiah 33, 15 through 18. I'll just read the second one for sake of time, but you can see the similarity as it is highlighted there. Jeremiah 33. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety, and this is the name by which she will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. The branch language, that nomenclature, that title, is tied to the Messiah who will restore the people and the promise. That title, branch, is big. We, we might branch. What are you talking about, calling me a branch? That doesn't sound fancy. But to them, that's a huge title. You see it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah predates Zechariah. So as he brings in this title, you have some prophetic context. As well, as well, beyond the Bible, in the ancient Near Eastern world, they used this title, the branch, and, and others used it to refer to an established uh, a, a royal dynastic line. In fact, archaeologists have unearthed Phoenician inscriptions from 3rd century B.C. that have the title on it, the righteous branch, being referred to the rightful heir of that particular dynastic throne. Along with branch, there's similar imagery that is used of the word shoot and the word root that we find in archaeology. Archaeologists have discovered the hymn of Lipit Ishar, the king who was a, a, a fifth king of the first dynasty of Isin. And in that text, we read about the shoot of royalty. Similarly, inside of the Bible, in, in the Jewish scriptures, you have the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, verse 2, who speaks of the Messiah as a shoot, who is, and I quote Isaiah, like a root out of the parched ground. That's a very fitting image for Isaiah, a fitting image given that the Messiah would come, Jesus would come after 400 years of silence. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that we're studying, the post-exilic text, these are the last prophets of the Hebrew Bible. They are the last prophets of the Hebrew Bible. And, and, and the people of Israel would sit in silence until their next Jewish prophet, John the prophet, who's popularly known for his baptisms, John the baptizer prophet, steps on the scene and breaks the silence. It's like a root out of the parched ground. Indeed, John is bringing water to the parched ground. So the people then, they, they had been out of the land for 70 years. The ground was parched. The dynasty of David had had, had been on hold. Who is of the line of David? Who will be our king? Well, don't even worry about that. First, we've got to build the temple. Yeah, but when is he going to come? Here's some visions. He's going to come. Here's a crown. Here's a branch. Ooh, now, now we're talking about David. I like this. The people will be getting encouraged. God's giving them revelation through the prophet. Messiah is coming. The exilic prophets like Jeremiah said 
or, or rather prophetically promised that a king from David's line, a branch, would reign in righteousness. Jeremiah also saw, you see here, he saw the priesthood being restored. So they're coming back from exile, and we read Levitical priests are going to come, and the line from David is going to come. Now we see in Zechariah that the branch, though, isn't a separate line. The branch is a priest and is a king in one. He's Melech Mashiach in one, not two, in one. This would have been outrageous in Zechariah's day because the Jewish law separated the priestly line of Levi from the kingly line of David. And even here in Jeremiah 33, you, you see the reference in verse 18 of priests, and then in verse 17, you, the reference of the king, and he's of the line of David. And the priests are of the line of Levi. These are two different lines. These are two different things. Coke and Pepsi. These are two different things. What are you talking about? Coke and Pepsi are the same? That's crazy. You know, your mind would just be blown. Are you kidding me? No, no, no. Those are different things. No, 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 no. No, these are one. How are they one? Well, we saw in Psalm 110 this morning in our public reading of Scripture, the priest and the king combined. We, 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 we see inside of, of, of Scripture that Levi isn't the only line of priests among the people of Abraham. In fact, the people of Abram, the father of the people, Abram, actually offered sacrifices to another priest. Who was it? Melchizedek. So there's the priesthood before the Levites. It's the Melchizedekian priesthood. And the Jewish Gospels trace the line of David through Jesus, so he is the rightful king, and the, and the Jewish texts of the New Testament trace the line of Jesus through Melchizedek. So you see, he can be priest and king in one because his priesthood is from Melchizedek and his kingship is from David. He's not of Levi, so it's not a separate thing. His priesthood is from Melchizedek. Zechariah is seeing a branch who's going to be, who's, who's going to be a priest and he's going to be a king in one. If Caiaphas knew his scripture, he would not have missed the moment with Pilate when he uttered Eke homo. Of course, Caiaphas's problem wasn't that he didn't pay better attention in Bible study classes. His problem was sin. And sin clouds us from seeing the things of the Lord. Jesus continually confronted this in his public ministry. We think of Nicodemus, the rabbi, as Jesus was teaching him of the Spirit. And he, he says to him, aren't you a teacher in Israel and you don't know this? Caiaphas, aren't you the high priest of Israel? And you didn't hear Eke Homo and immediately go, oh, the one who's going to suffer, the one who will be our priest, will also be our king. Untie him! Stop! Stop! Don't do this! The people in the days of Jesus wanted a Messiah who would conquer. They wanted a Messiah who would give them political answers to things. They were enamored with political powers. They spent too much time watching the news and too little time reading their Bibles. And so they wanted a Messiah that would look like a powerful politician. They wanted a Messiah that looked like Herod, who, who brought them a certain level of comfort because he could advocate with them with the powers of Rome. But the Messiah wasn't anything like Herod. He had come to suffer. He had come to seek and to save the lost. He had come to live a life of humility, not a life up in the high hills of Herod. This is important for us to understand. That is the doctrine of the humiliation of Christ along with the doctrine of the exaltation of Christ. I'll put it in front of you. These two involve the same one. Just as Zechariah is foreseeing, one who was a suffering priest and a conquering king. We speak of the doctrine of the humiliation of the Christ, his pre-incarnate glory with the Lord, that according to the scriptures he, he, he departs from, we read in, in, in Philippians, which isn't an, an ontological statement, it's an attitudinal one. He becomes a man, he is incarnate, he lives an earthly life of suffering and humility and surface. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's homeless, he's hungry, he's rejected, he's, he's uh, you know, mistaken, he's attacked, and all the rest. He lives a very hard life, albeit in perfect holiness unto the Lord, so that he can be the sacrifice for sin, innocent and pure. In his crucifixion, as he dies and gives his innocence in the place of our guilt, and not only gives us his innocence, but also his righteousness, we see he's risen from the dead, and this begins the cycle of exaltation. He ascends to the heavens. He sits at the right hand of God as our sympathetic high priest, we read of the hope of, of him coming again when he will bring the promised kingdom, will he, when he will cleanse the temple, when he will bring all of the promises that have been given in Scripture to literal fulfillment. Verse 13, he will build the temple. That's what the text says. And he will draw the nations to it. Draw your eyes at, at verse 14. 
Now the crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Halem, Tobiah, and Jedidiah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. Those who are far off will come. He will build the temple, and he will draw the nations, those who are far off to come. After this era, the creation will be made new, the new heavens and the new earth at the end of those mountaintops that I showed you earlier. Now let's not get into the new heavens and the new earth and into the future as Christ fulfills these things. Let's come back to the text of Zechariah, and let's look at this phrase of the outsiders coming. We have considered the offering collected, the ornate crown, the offices combined. Now outsiders coming. Verse 14. The crown will become a reminder in the temple of the Lord to Halem, Tobiah, Jedidiah, and Han, the son of Zephaniah. This is important to understand, which is why we're paused here. Notice that the crown wasn't for Joshua. He's not running around wearing it, right? He's the, he's the high priest. He's the post-exile high priest. If anyone was going to wear it, he would wear it. But, but it, it wasn't for him. He is a symbol. The crown is a symbol. You, you, you put it in the temple and let it be a reminder that there is one who is coming, and that crown belongs to him and him alone. And he will be both priest and both king, the two offices combined. Now notice the names here, uh, Halem, this is another name for Heldai. Hen is another name for Josiah. What a legacy these men that we read about in this section of scripture, what a legacy they left. They used their gifts to point people to the Messiah. They, they gave away, they took their money and they used it, and they gave it away, they used their gifts to do things for the service of the Lord, and their names are written down in God's holy word. God continues to do this with us. He continues to take our generosity and our charity and use our gifts in pointing others to Him, just as, just, just as Halem, Tobiah, and Jedediah, and Hen did. Now, verse 15, those who are far off will come and will build the temple. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you, and it will take place if you completely obey the Lord your God. The outsider seems to have double meaning in the text. It speaks of the Jews who are far away, who had chosen uh, Babylonia, suburbia, over, you know, man, going back and all the hard stuff that was going on there in the holy city of Jerusalem. Though they will come, just as the Lord brought these men, Tobiah and so forth. They, they will come. But, but also, it has a double meaning for this is the language of Gentiles, and we know the Abrahamic covenant involved the blessing of the nations or the Gentiles. Zechariah definitely sees this in chapter 8, verse 22. We'll get there in our study, namely Gentiles coming in, and so we see this imagery here. The Messiah of Israel will be the Savior of the nations, and he certainly was. And that's how we all got here. This little church in Los Angeles, far from Jerusalem, uh, and with a bacon-eating Gentile pastor, <laughs> he has drawn the Gentiles. The branch has come. In fact, when he came, he entered the temple, the temple that they were building in Zechariah. And he spoke of, of his temple being a house of prayer for all people. And, he, and, 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 and that's exactly what Zechariah, and, and that's exactly what their hands are, are going to be doing. They're going to be building this, this, this house for that. But notice how it ends. You've got to completely obey the Lord in this which is a, a reminder that, as I said at the front, they didn't completely obey the Lord. And, and, and they didn't experience this. And the Shekinah of the Lord didn't fill that temple. And, and the branch came to that temple and, 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 and rebuked that temple. And that temple was knocked over in 70 AD under the reign of Titus by those Roman powers. You didn't obey, and that's what happened. I brought you back to the land. I put you there. Solomon's temple was built in seven years. You've been there 15 years and you haven't done anything. You didn't obey. And the prophet comes and he, and he says, look, you didn't obey. The, you're in trouble. God asked you to do something. You didn't do it. You're in trouble. That should cause our knees to knock. The, 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 the hair on our back to stand up. God told us to do something and we didn't do it. He's the giver of life. He, he could take life back from us. He's in control of all things. He told us to do something. We didn't do it. That's the law. That's the law of God. It, it reveals that. It brings you to a place of guilt and shame where you say, you know what, you're right. And as you feel that guilt and shame, the law won't set you free from that. But the gospel does. And the gospel says, while you haven't done what he has told you to do, behold the one who has come, who has fulfilled it perfectly. He, he never said no to the Father. He never said no to Moses. He, he, he never tripped over Torah. 
He always walked in righteousness, and he will give you his righteousness if you come to him and you cry out for forgiveness and you draw yourself near to him. As the great hymn says, day by day, day by day, oh, dear Lord, three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly, day by day. It is the call of the gospel to come to the Lord day by day, realizing that apart from him we would be condemned. Like Israel, we've been given commandments that we don't obey, the supreme one to share the gospel with the lost. And we spend so much time doing so many other things besides that. The weight of his law weighs against us, but behold the one who has come to set us free. And that is the message for us, the final point on your outline for the church. We too, like Israel in the days of Zechariah, have been called to build a temple. And this is the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple that is the precursor to the great eschatological temple. This is a temple that Christ said he would build specifically through his people. He said to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. The ascended and glorified exalted one is the architect, the engineer, the, the craftsman of the church. He is our, our priest. He is our builder. And brothers and sisters, we are all stones that he's cutting and he's fitting together to build this thing. And we, the church, serve as the picture in this age of God's dwelling in the earth. We are the porthole of the heavens. We are the tabernacle of God. We are the, the communion of the saints in which the, the, the Spirit manifests himself. Jesus' body was the temple. He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. And we now are his body in this age. If you would take your communion cups and let us behold the picture of his body. As Zechariah said, that crown is a picture of something else. Put it in the temple. That's not for you to wear. It's a picture of something else. Brothers and sisters, this bread is a picture of something else. It is a, it is a picture of the temple of God and the flesh of the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the nations. And he died, he died out of love for his people knowing that we would have the wrath of the Father on our backs, except for His perfect sacrifice, that He took literally upon His body. And so we take this symbol to remember the literal. Let us eat, brothers and sisters. Blood is a precious thing. Without blood in your body, there is no life. In sacrifice, blood is shed. Pontius Pilate ordered our Lord to be scourged. They literally watched this symbol poured on the ground. They mocked him. They scourged him. Pilate said, I don't see anything wrong with him. Eke homo. Behold the man. Missing, missing prophecy. Missing it all. And we stand by the grace of God on this side of the cup knowing what all of this means. Not because we were smart. Not because we had good teachers. Not because of anything in us, but by his grace, he opened our eyes to see, and he invited us to this precious meal. Let us drink, brothers and sisters. Let us commit afresh today to be temple builders. As the people of Israel were brought back to that land, and they were called to build, let us commit afresh today the risen temple, the Christ, and the temple being made by his spirit. Let's be committed to this. I'll close by reading a prayer to you from the great theologian John Calvin. And then we will enter into a time of song to conclude our service. The great theologian John Calvin, for some reason my PowerPoint disappeared. Uh, if you could get it back up there, guys. The great theologian John Calvin wrote this prayer. I guess I'll just read it. Grant, almighty God, that since thy Son has been made known to us, through whom is brought to us the perfection of all blessings and of true and real glory. O oh, grant that we may continue settled in and never turn here or there, never fluctuate in any way, but be so satisfied with his kingship and priesthood as to deliver ourselves, as to deliver ourselves wholly to his care and protection and never doubt that we are so sanctified by his grace as to be now acceptable to thee, and that relying on him as our mediator, 
we may offer ourselves as a sacrifice to thee with full confidence of heart and thus strive to glorify thee through the whole course of our life that we may at length be partakers of that celestial glory which has been obtained for us by the blood of thy only begotten Son. Amen. John Calvin just, just took Zechariah 6 and just packed it into a prayer there. Again, I encourage you, Valley of Vision, other prayer books. It's great to read prayers and learn from them. Of course, it's great to read God's word and learn from it. And now let's seek the Lord that we would be changed by it. Let's pray and sing. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace to open our eyes to see the, the, the things in your word that ancients have stumbled over. Indeed, the high priest Caiaphas missed it. Lord, the crowds of your people missed it. Your disciples, they, they, they got it, but they ran in fear and didn't fully understand what was before them. And Lord, in grace, you would return to them and you would love them and you would tell them, feed my sheep. And you would tell them, go to the nations, proclaim the good news that has come. Oh Lord, we, we confess that, that that's not on the front of our minds. We, we confess that we, like the post-exiles, we're busy doing other things. And we pray today, dear God, by your grace, that you would empower us afresh and pour out a spirit of boldness in us, that we would proclaim to the lost, Ecce homo, behold the man who has come. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have the joy of knowing you, and we celebrate you here with the communion that we just partook and with the songs that we are about to offer. Be glorified in them. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.